Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Hi, I'm Andrew Decker. This is Andrew Decker joining me. I'm and, Andrew Harris, and you're Andrew Harris. Yeah, and and Mr. Decker, you have a you have a glow about you. You you just returned from the sunny shores of San Antonio, the river of San Antonio, <laughs> the sunny shores of right. San, the, the, of the first river of all, the shores of the San Antonio River are not very uh, sunny. Yeah, because it's kind of down in a hole. Yeah, it smells shady, bad. Sure. It, yeah yeah but russ i was at rusty duncan yeah i I had to miss unfortunately last minute but uh but i missed i missed you and i missed missed everybody everybody down there yeah um but we had a good time i I handed out business cards for the show i met some people for the show i tweeted about the show yeah what did you do for the show Mm -hmm. yeah that's what i thought well Uh, but one of the things (laughs) i did was i arranged a few podcast guests uh, and the first one is uh, Elise Ferguson. Yeah, uh, I'm I really met, excited about this. Right. So, so if if you're a defender and you've been to Rusty Duncan, you know that where you really meet people is, well, at the bar. Happy uh, hour. Happy hour. And one of our former guests, uh, Jessica Cantor, actually in, introduced us, um, and we love Jessica, and it was great to get to see her. Um, but she introduced me to Elise, yeah. who works in Collin County, and I'm going to let Elise kind of tell us. Uh, a little bit of what she does. Elise, welcome to the show. Hey, Elise. Hi, thanks, Andrew and Andrew. Um, right. I'm Ferguson, yes. and I work at Collin County. I manage the Mental Health Managed Council Program. And rather than a public defender's office, our office manages attorneys on the private wheel or the public wheel. So like many counties, you operate off of a wheel system, but we have an attorney overseeing all of that. And that's what I do specifically for mental health cases. All right. So, so instead of just being assigned a case, you're, uh, uh, you know, as an appointed attorney there in your system, um, you, the attorney, an attorney is overseeing uh, other attorneys, uh, in their representation on cases that are assigned to you. They are, the cases are assigned to the attorney and I make sure that those cases are moving and the clients are being seen and offer resources to the attorneys uh, about programs and, other components that they may not be aware of. Right. Oh, I like that. Right. So I actually, uh, then after learning what she did, I asked some questions, uh, about a former client I had and Miss Ferguson, yeah. uh, well, she taught me a few things. I'll just put yeah. it that way. We won't get into it because <laughs> I don't want to embarrass myself for my clients or, you know, show my weaknesses here on the show. Um, I, I I've always thought that that's the best part of Rusty is you you just meet somebody who's done something um, that you that you just haven't done all that much. Maybe you learn a few new tricks. You you learn how to better serve your clients. So that's a great experience. Right. You know? Actually, she was a huge help, and and we she and I have already talked a little bit about that since then. So. And this kind of sounds like uh, what you do sounds like um, when we interviewed. Um, down in uh he's down in houston and running the um the not the innocence project but uh, oh, they drew. Actually, yeah drew has the has the social worker on staff that can like kind of get their clients some services and whatnot and as an attorney i'm really just focused on you know facts of the case case law negotiating a good deal i'm not necessarily concerned about where my client's gonna live right after they get a time served but then there's also the whatever. question that miss ferguson's gonna ask what are the mental health issues, right? Yeah. Because it's sometimes obvious that you're talking to somebody that's not in the same universe you are, but what do you do with the person that's kind of in between? So 
hopefully Miss Ferguson kind of help us deal with that. So sure. you spend a lot of time, uh, at least uh, dealing with crisis intervention and mental health. Why are those so important in the practice of criminal defense? And Andrew, if that's okay, can I address something you just said before I answer that? Of course. Yeah, butt in. You're, you'll be fine. One of the things you just said is that, um, you know, sometimes the attorney's not concerned with where the client's going to live after. And, and I think that is one of the biggest hurdles that I encounter. I do have a social worker and we have all these services for the clients. I mean, I have people who donate money where we can go get them uh, hygiene items or a hotel room for the night or something else. And the attorney will say, well, that's not my job. And holistic defense is important. We do want our clients to succeed. And I'm not suggesting you shove it down their throat, but, you know, for somebody who does truly want help or want something, maybe that little bit of help goes a long way to prevent them from entering the system again. And so I do think it's incumbent on us to steer them in the right direction. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, And that's, that's something that uh, I guess since or or through this podcast, you know, I've learned a lot of better ways to serve my clients. And that's part of it. I don't want one to set my clients up for failure through an onerous, you know, probation term or, or whatever the case may be. Um, but, but also for some of my clients who, um, don't have secure housing is to make sure they're not just going to go and sleep in the city park where they're just going to get arrested all over again. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So on your question about crisis intervention and mental health, uh, since all the cases that I handle are are mental health, it's obviously important that I know the ins and outs of our system. And and we do have a very complicated mental health system. Uh, Crisis intervention in particularly is, and just to give you a little background, is officers being trained to assist uh, clients in mental health crisis. So they receive crisis intervention training. And the idea or the concept is that they work as a team member with community providers so that that person gets referred to services. Unfortunately, uh, the Sandra Bland Act, you know, a few years ago, well, the good part of it was it did require all of our officers to have training. I think a few departments have taken the attitude that if all their officers are trained, there's no longer a need for a team. And that's not what it's about. We have to have the team to get people routed uh, where they need help. And so I've really found uh, a great benefit to being an instructor for the police in their classes on crisis intervention and being able to, you know, break down some of the barriers and learn the hurdles that they face or what they see, but also become approachable. I mean, I have uh, many of these officers will call me about a case and say, hey, what other options do we have here? And for me, that that feels successful to be able to get the officers to refer people other ways instead of the jail or even get them help once they get to the jail. Yeah, how, how critical is that the, for those persons that really they're having a mental issue that's being... So if you study family systems theories... Uh, the idea that the person that is exhibiting, the, the one that is acting out, is really the symptom of the disease in the family. The criminal activity is often just the symptom of the mental, acti- mental health issue. And we end up calling the police because we don't have a better option by we. I mean, you know, like a, a witness or a community yeah, member. Citizen, yeah. um, and, and to be able to, to remove them, and by I don't mean remove them, I mean remove them into a mental health or to a different aspect versus the, the county jail 
that alone can be crucial for this person's long-term success. So. Absolutely. And we, you know, one of the things I've also found is we've had new statutes put in place, such as uh, Code of Criminal Procedure uh, 1623, which requires officers to make a good faith effort to divert certain individuals from the criminal justice system. And I still found an amazing number of officers don't even know that law exists. And their inability to utilize it is that they don't have places to refer the individuals to. So we really need the community, you know, support and movement in having alternatives for diversion. Yeah. And that's assuming that you're in a, in a relatively urban setting to have some, some opportunities. You get into some of the more rural counties that Andrew and I serve and there may be an MHMR department that covers three or four counties and they're only in that actual location, you know, one to two days a week and it truly it becomes yeah and very no, difficult no shelter space certainly no mhmr residential space right so and, and you know it follows with maslow's hierarchy if we haven't met their their basic needs of food and shelter and safety then they're not worried about their mental health needs yeah right That's well and, and i never it, thought about it in that in those terms That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly we're like, dude, we got yeah. some work to do. Um, <laughs> well, I, did, I, did, I never thought about a, approaching a criminal case it, with regards to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Usually that's just like, you know, I, we talk about that in interpersonal connections, um, you know, uh, husband, wife type relationships, not, not professional, uh, at least as far as like me being the attorney to serving my clients. That's, that's really interesting. Well, it's it's kind of the 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 guy that ends up getting a um, criminal trespass case because he sleeps on the. I, I, I had a case oh, yeah. several I've years had ago. Oh yeah, plenty of these. It yeah. was sleeping on the city of Fort Worth municipal court steps because there was a plug and he could plug in his phone, and he could sleep there for a few hours and get his phone charged. Yeah. Well, they kept telling him to leave, and after about the third night in a row where he was there, they just arrested him. Well, without a phone, he can't. Do, do anything. anything yeah he can't make his appointments he can't schedule you're right i mean it can't can't get rides and and so that's where we find the dilemma i mean right. most of our people especially our homeless homeless population struggle because they don't have an id and an id is required to pick up their prescription and to go to the mental health provider yeah yeah and i don't know if you've had this but they're like yeah i lost my id when i got arrested a couple of months ago and you're like geez Yeah. And I, you know, I bring that up to the officers when I teach class, how important it is when they arrest somebody that's homeless, that they let them get their belongings. And at our jail, we went, I went to the DPS because of this hurdle and got them to agree. There's a letter our jail issues for our inmates when they're released, if they don't have an ID, that, that is the document that enables them to get their ID replaced or to get a birth certificate because it verifies their identity. And so that's worked really well for us. That is is genius. We need, we need that information. So, so we're only, we're all of about 12 minutes in and I've already learned more about what we need to do in a couple of places. You and I work, Andrew, than well, I, I, you know, there was there, I think, I think defense attorneys in general have that, have had that experience, like Andrew was saying with a criminal trespass and, and um, more often than not, if it's somebody who's homeless, it's probably their like 30th criminal trespass. We had one, um, I had one case in particular 
this poor guy is pleading out to a time served because it's criminal trespass. Um, and the prosecutor was so offended that this guy just kept getting arrested, that he addressed the court to, to be able to like chastise this defendant, uh, whenever he was pleading out. I mean, it was just like, you have zero clue what's going on here or how to truly help the, the County in which you're serving. Um, oh, my favorite though, is when they say they didn't learn their lesson the last time. So this time we're giving them the full sentence. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What yeah, lesson? Okay. Don't be homeless. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like that's going to fix everything. Right. And that it, anyway, we're, we're going to get off that. We're going to ask the question. Uh, so let's assume that that we get appointed on a case because I'm assuming we're going to be appointed um, right. it, it, with this issue. And we go see him at the jail, uh, hopefully within the next business day, as the uh, as the statute and the rules dictate. Right. But, you know, let's say as quick as possible. And we realize this person may not be full-on incompetent, but they're not fully with us. They're not living, they aren't functioning in the same, yeah. same ethos the rest of us are. What do we do? What do we, what's the process for getting that client some mental health? So I think that is, does pose, I guess, an ethical problem sometimes for some attorneys where they feel that their client is competent enough and they need to move forward with the plea, especially when you're talking about misdemeanors and not delay the client any further. Uh, then they've got this other conundrum of, but this client needs help. What do I do? And I think we can always refer clients for help to our local mental health authorities or other providers. And, you know, the best way is to have those relationships with them before where we can move easily through that instead of learning the system at each point, obviously smaller rural areas is harder, but, you know, we have the capability because we've built these relationships to call our provider up and say, hey, can you meet with this client and offer them services? And sometimes that service is something as small as them getting a ride home, but then they want to take part in more services. And also, I think it's a great negotiating tool with the state because many times they'll ask the court for amended conditions that the client go to go to the mental health provider and take part in services as a dismissal option. And then if the person co uh, complies with that, maybe for a month or two or longer, then the state ends up dismissing the charge. So that gives you a few more options. Yeah, that, that is, um, that's something I've done in Tarrant County. They, uh, they have a little bit more robust uh, MHMR system than what we have uh, in some of the more rural counties. Uh, and actually I, if I could, you know, to Tarrant County's horn a little bit, they, they really, I think, do a very good job about making sure um, the, some of these individuals who are exhibiting signs of mental distress are getting services. Um, and that, that is absolutely true. And I, and I perhaps could, should probably do more for my in jail clients in Parker County or wherever, just to, just at least calling MHMR on their behalf and telling them, what's going on, what I'm, you know, what I'm seeing, and maybe they can give me some insight, some, some local insight onto as to uh, next steps that could be taken. Oh, yes, that would be great. And being that, you know, a lot of times they have flyers, you can give your client with referral information, and uh, many other resources. Yeah, so, um, so find my find, I guess that's like the, the point number one is, you know, defenders out there, find your local MHMR uh, uh, phone number 
and just keep that in your in your briefcase. Keep that in your phone just so you have that as a resource. Also, you know that that's a great point, and I would also encourage them to keep the crisis line in their phone. Ah, uh, yeah. I've needed that more than once, uh, and you know, at, during COVID, we're seeing a lot more of that, and it helps to have that handy. Yeah. So, by crisis line, explain what you mean by that. So, our mental health authorities have a crisis phone number, a twenty-four hour phone number for someone who's in crisis, and um, you know, it's not something you want to dig for when you need it. So it helps to get that from the local authority or you should be able to find it online and just add that to your phone. Right. Uh, yeah. So I was actually thinking like um, uh, suicide crisis hotline, which again is another one that probably is not a bad one to have. I've had a few clients where I've said, look, you don't, you don't have to call me. You don't have to call the police, but if in the middle of the night you don't feel well, call this number. Um, and it's usually a national number, but at least gives them someone to talk to and get an idea if they need to go to the hospital now or yeah. can they be talked down from the ledge uh, until Absolutely. Morning. Yeah. I, one of the things, the, the, the things I did not expect to become maybe not an expert in, but, but more proficient in as I became an attorney was mental health, uh, crisis intervention, suicide intervention, then obviously we are all uh, kind of drug, drug and alcohol addict yeah. uh, semi-experts just from what we see every day. Um, so you, you said that getting, getting them into a program sometimes can help them uh, get a case dismissed. I, I've got a client right now that I'm working to try to keep her in counseling because I think it's going to be one of the big pieces in keeping her out of prison. Um, uh, to show that she had a mental illness, she is working on that, and that she has a recovery plan ahead of her. Um, but but it, what do we do with the client who's in custody? If they're out of custody, we can send them to M MHMR. What do we do with that person who's in custody and they're not going to bond out? What do, what do we do with that person? Well, it, and obviously that's a little bit different between rule and uh, urban areas, <clears throat> because in my area, in Tarrant County and in Dallas County, we have programs with discharge planners that can go meet with the client and look at what the plan is upon release and help them connect those dots and figure out how they're getting from point A to point B. You know, our jail is a little bit in the rural area in that we don't have public transportation. There's not a phone close by. So we can pretty much guarantee that if our clients are released uh, at midnight, they're going to end up at the quick trespass making a phone call um, yeah. because that's that's as far that's where they have to go to use the phone. So we want to get them back. And my ideal is to get them back where they came from, put them in the best place they could be in. So if it's somebody from Dallas, I don't feel like I'm doing them a service for them just to be released up here in McKinney. Um, right. And we want to get that. But uh, I think when you're in the more rural areas, it is a lot of looking at how to not set your client up for failure, as you mentioned before, because if someone's not going to stay on their medicine and they're telling you that up front and they just want their time served, that really may be better from them, even though you know that a um, it may be enhanceable later on. But we, again, have to follow the wishes of our clients. And we just need to try to explain to them every avenue of that where they, in a term they can understand. And, you know, a, a good point about that, not to get too far off topic, is that most clients 
in jails have a sixth grade education. That's the average level of education. And the majority of issues I see where an attorney and a client just aren't getting along or the client's having difficulty understanding is because this is too far uh, over their head and somebody needs to explain in terms in which they can understand. Yeah, I, I wonder then how, how many times have you heard just anecdotally of attorneys explaining some of these services to their clients and their clients like maybe changing their mind like, oh, yeah, that sounds a lot better than sleeping out on the ground, you know, just because they just don't know what services are out there. I think it happens often. In fact, I had an attorney call this morning and say, my, we're ready to plead time served, but my client is asked can she just stay put for the moment till we can figure out uh, some resources for her and some services? And so we were able to call the mental health authority and send him over to meet with her and, and tell her what there was, you know, available. Yeah. That, that client needs to be applauded. That is, that is fantastic, you know, foresight. Um, just recognizing that they're not on the right path. <laughs> that, that is, um, I have not had a client say, I'm just going to sit here for a little bit because I think it's going to be better for me in the long run. Well, and you know, one problem that's very frustrating is how difficult it is to get services for the client. So it truly is the best opportunity to get services, even though I hate that there has to be a criminal charge attached with it. If I walked into a mental health authority trying to get services, I fear I would turn around and walk out because of how cumbersome it is. I mean, you have yeah. to have... Uh, you know, a bill and your lease and your driver's license and fill out all these forms. And when someone's in a mental health crisis, it's incredibly overwhelming to have to do all that. And so I hate that things are so difficult for them. And at least when they are here in jail, we do help them navigate that a little bit. And I think it, it helps, but that's just not always the case. Right. Yeah. Just to kind of, in my personal experience, um, I have a now an 18 year old. Uh, and as we were trying to sign him up, uh, for all the things that happen when you're a young adult with disabilities, you know, SSI and so forth, just so that to make sure he's ready. And my wife and I, both of who are highly educated, both of who have at least master's degrees. And we said, this paperwork is complicated for us. And we thought we know lots of lots of our friends and that's, you know, friends, families who just the paperwork would be enough for them to end up not getting what their kid needs. Right. They just couldn't get it turned in the right way. I can't imagine if I'm in a mental crisis intervention or, or, or moment where I'm on the edge of society on the edge of my of my own being on the edge of uh acting out in ways that would be unsafe to then be handed a packet of paperwork and go here fill this out and provide us proof that you actually live in the county yeah um right and, and paperwork's just not benefit. fun anyways oh yeah and, and one benefit to applying while they're in custody is you've got the residency document there <laughs> you, you asked me about what attorneys needed to know for these in-custody clients. I think another important thing is that the longer they stay in custody, they lose their benefits. So if you have someone, or their benefits are suspended. So if you have someone who gets SSI, is suspended because they're in custody. So even if they had a home or had the capability to pay for something uh, with those benefits, 
they still have a period after their release where they have no money and they have to hope they can find somebody to help them fill out the paperwork to get their money restarted. It just sounds like a nightmare. Why am I getting I think it is. I now I need services. I know. I, know. <laughs> I, I don't mean that to be that. Sorry. All right. So making light of it. That's all right. 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 So, so, yeah, the, the, you know, I'm just going through like all my clients that just mentally, um, in my head right now, clients with mental, um, issues, um, in the past. And I'm, I'm just seeing all of these things that I could have done to, to just serve them better and be a better attorney for them. But at least what is the, what, what do you think is the most common error an attorney makes when dealing with a client, um, you know, who may be experiencing some mental health issues? Um, I, I think probably overlooking that there's a competency concern and not having that evaluated. And we, we had kind of go two different extremes. One is overlooking it completely, or the other is putting everybody and their brother through competency because they want to cover themselves. And you shouldn't be trying to cover yourself by having a competency exam. You should have truly have a question if you're asking that. But many of our clients can't be restored and have long-term issues. And we're certainly doing them a, a disservice if they're not competent to move forward with the case. And a lot of that is because we're not doing interviews. The attorney does not do an intake interview uh, that's very thorough, especially on a misdemeanor. It's more, hey, I'll come back when I've got your discovery and um, you know, I'll tell you what the offer is. And then they go tell them the offer and they're ready to set it up without really looking at the maybe the facts of the case, why the client got the trespass or whatever it was and asking about that history because it certainly impairs their ability to understand and communicate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would think that's probably what I probably experience is, is trying to talk myself maybe out of filing a request for a mental evaluation, mental competency evaluation. Um, like, no, well, they knew their name. They answered, you know what I mean? I just, but I should, I should, if I, if I just have a question, I should just be filing that, that motion, um, for one, um, and letting a professional actually decide that. Well, and, and, you know, two very different thoughts on that are misdemeanors, particularly <clears throat> if you have a criminal trespass and you'll hear people say sometimes, well, they're competent enough for that. Um, because the other's side of it is when you have a criminal trespass that maybe gets 20 days time and right at this moment there are there's a 1500 person wait list for the state hospital if a criminal trespass is incompetent and, and in our case we have one right now where the state wants them to go to the hospital that individual will never ever leave our jail and go to the state hospital due to the wait list therefore they will spend 180 days in custody and that feels a lot like punishment to me. And so am I, should I be working with my client more and trying to help them understand these terms or should I jump straight to the competency? But then you have a theft, which can be enhanced and later harm your client. So I think, you know, we have to really look at those aspects. Yeah. Just weigh the weigh you know, weigh the different collateral consequences of the plea how much time they're really going to have to sit in. Yeah. I'm, I don't know that that's a, that probably is a very hard decision to make in the moment. 
Well, and then occasionally, even on a on a felony, you you actually say, "Hey, I think I've got a guy that's incompetent, and here are some reasons." And I've had a judge chastise me for, you know, filing that motion. He's like, "You want to make this a public motion? You need to do this ex parte." And I'm like, uh, "You know, <laughs> well." Oh, I thought he was going to chastise you for for you know slowing the court's docket down. No, at least they, at least he didn't chastise you for that. Yeah. Yeah, but he doesn't call me by name. He just calls me Bowtie Lawyer. So, you know, anyway. <laughs> he knows who he is. He knows who he is. Um, <laughs> so if you had if you had one, we ask you what the common error was. If you had one piece of advice you were going to give an attorney yeah. who was new trying to figure out how to decide what to do with, with, a, with a client who's on the edge of needing or not needing, they're trying to make a decision, what piece of advice would you give them? it would be just to talk with another attorney as a resource that has had some experience with those cases or to one of the doctors. Our doctors have been great about, you know, fielding attorneys calls with questions. And honestly, I think if you're talking about somebody who you have that much of a question about, you probably need to go ahead. Uh, I think it's yeah. other um, kind of delusions and paranoia that are more problematic. If they're on the line, I think you're better off to go ahead if you have that question. You know, I had a lady one day that brought in a stuffed animal to court and I immediately got a call that said, Hey, you need to come take care of this. We have a person in court who's incompetent in this. And I said, no, you know, a stuffed animal doesn't make a person incompetent. And so some of it's just a misunderstanding about what competency is. And so I think lawyers should also try to educate themselves and take courses on competency when they have the opportunity because you encounter it more than you think. I have lawyers all the time say, oh, I haven't had one of those cases. I've been practicing 28 years. Well, I'm sorry, but that makes me say, how many did you miss? Yeah. Yeah, I think I probably had one within my first week of taking cases. I mean, that there's no way they didn't have one in 28 years. I mean, I think people who are, who are experiencing these mental health issues are more prone to enter into the criminal justice system. You know, there's, there's just absolutely no way that the, he, that somebody who's been practicing almost three decades has had zero interaction None, with right. a mental health client. Ugh. So obviously this is hard. It's hard to deal with um, the fact that we've got uh, someone before us as an attorney who has a criminal charge, who, um, maybe dealing with societal problems, um, homelessness, uh, yeah. poverty, maybe dealing with addiction, maybe dealing with a mental health thing. And, and, and sometimes it's hard for, for us to keep our, our eyes wide enough to see all those issues and to help decide what the client needs, not just, not just from the, the actual legal aspect of, is this a good case or not? But what do they need in terms of how do we help them move through this system and not return to it just because of other uh, issues in their own life? Yeah. And, and Elise, I want to, I want to thank you for bringing up some of these things and educating me on a lot of this stuff. The, and I think for our listeners, you know, Andrew and I wanted this topic, not, not just to say like, Oh, here's another aspect of your casework that you're missing and you shouldn't be missing it really is, it should be encouraging for people to know there's probably a lot of services out there that you just don't know about that can assist you on these cases. Absolutely. And 
sometimes, honestly, it's as simple as an Uber. Uh, we have people who get arrested from out of state and, and their subsequent arrests are because they can't get out of here or, um, you know, can't pick up their medication. So sometimes it's relatively easily solved if we just ask the questions. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, that's good great. stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to, as soon as we're done recording here, I'm going to go and look up the MHMR office for our local jurisdiction. Cause I, I just think like, Oh man, that's pecan Valley. It's yeah. pecan Valley in I'm, our local jurisdiction, Mr. Harith. <clears throat> um, so anyway, Jeez. but also the idea that every, you know, something that, that Elise said, if you get released from custody in Tarrant County, there is a phone by the door that anyone can pick up and dial a local number, right? There are a lot of jails I've been in that do not have such a, such a phone. So, so you can yeah, call while you're in custody, one. Yeah, but once you're out of custody, screw you, man, you can't call for a ride you're on your own. Um, there's a pay phone at the big country down the road, right? Yeah. So, so something well, I will say our jail does have a phone, uh, but people just tend to need to start to move away from the jail, you know, and get down the yeah. road. Yeah. Yeah. But even if it were, you know, anyway, if the, yeah. If you have somebody to call and whatever. Yeah. So. And you know, the number. Exactly. So we also ask every guest a few fun questions because we're, we are all more than just our caseload. Um, uh, and so a few, few fun questions. First one, uh, Elise, what is your favorite band or musical artist? Right now, my favorite band is Park, Parker McCollum. My best friend's son plays for Parker. And so oh, we really concerts. That's cool. Yeah, he's fun. It's always more fun if you know people in the band. Exactly. What about uh, your favorite book? My favorite book is The Last Lecture. Have you ever read it? No. Tell me about that. So it's a very quick read uh, written by Randy uh, Parsh, I think is his name, is a professor who was dying of cancer and he left it as a legacy to his children. So it's a lot of short little stories, um, but the gist of it is, you know, like where we focus our attention, where are our priorities? I think one story he tells us about leaving his socks on the floor and after he was diagnosed with cancer, how unimportant that argument was with his wife. And uh, one you know, story in particular, he tells us about uh, Winnie the Pooh and, and Eeyore and that every day we have a choice to get up and we pick, are we going to be Winnie the Pooh or are we going to be Eeyore? And that we have control over that. So just a lot of uh, interesting, thought-provoking little snippets. I like to give it to seniors when they graduate. That's wonderful. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to put that on my, on my uh, reading list now. I'm going to start leaving my socks on the floor. It's an audio book too. Don't don't think that's wise, Andrew. <laughs> um, so, and hey, go ahead, Andrew. So related to that, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It could be professional or personal. Wow, um, you know, I it's hard to think of one, but I think you know, last week I actually got a good piece of advice because I was very frustrated about um, continuing to hit walls on certain things and. And having to go down a path I didn't want to. And, and a friend said to me, how does it matter how you get there as long as you, in the end, get the, reach the goal that you want? And it, it's helping individuals with mental health needs. And, and I was getting frustrated that I wasn't um, accomplishing my goal. And that's when he told me. And so I had to step back and look at there may be other ways to get, get where I need to be without uh, them being particularly the way I want to get there. 
Yeah, that that uh, sounds a lot to me like, you know, just relinquishing control or recognizing those things that may be out of your control and just just learning to let go. Because you're right. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, if if the goal is accomplished, who cares how you got to that destination? They look more more good advice. I like that. I, I think that's really important. Really, you know, don't don't get discouraged if it's not going the way that you had it planned out in your mind, so long as the big picture is still in place. That's wonderful. Yep. Good stuff. So Elise, if somebody needed to find you, reach out to you, uh, how would they do that? You don't have to necessarily give us your full on like personal cell phone number, but uh, (laughs) besides just Googling uh, Elise Ferguson, how would they find you? What would be some ways they'd get in contact with you? Well, I'm at Collin County Mental Health Managed Council. My email is aferguson at co.colin.tx.us. Wonderful. That's pretty as specific as it specific as it gets. Yeah, that that's the uh, that's the typical like county email uh, you know domain I guess towards the end there. It is. Yeah. yeah. Good deal. Yeah, this is this has been great, and hopefully a lot of our defenders they do have any questions can can you know shoot you a note. Uh, an email and and maybe get some some ideas on how to better serve their clients. I, I certainly am going to come away with this with a with a handful of items that I'm going to try and incorporate into my regular representation. Well, so and, thank you. And for looking that. at that code of criminal procedure, the mental health uh, code also is absolutely absolutely yeah. important. Yeah, another. And I always have the- tons of cheat sheets for people. So. Cheat sheets. I love cheat sheets. You have tons of cheat sheets for people. I have tons of cheat sheets and you should check out the bench bar book by the judicial commission on mental health. It's on their website. It's a great resource that goes through many steps of interaction with people with mental health needs. Uh, It's a great resource. Look at that. We have so many things we're going to add onto the show notes that Andrew will never be able I'll to find. I'll never be able to find but, them. I, I know how to use Google, so I might find them that way. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add these all on our on our show notes, so hopefully people can can just have that as an easy resource. All right. That's great. Well, so, Lise, thank you so much. So this kind of brings us to the end of this episode. Yeah. Next episode's a big episode for us, Andrew. Is it? It is. We're turning 50. Oh, my gosh. 50 episodes? 50, 50 regular episodes, you, you know, because we have a few special ones along the way. You would think that we would be getting better at this. <laughs> yeah, one would think. <laughs> <laughs> Just think how bad we used to be. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so next time uh, we turn 50. That's amazing. Um, it is. It's pretty exciting. Well, this has been a great 49th episode. This has been 49 is a great one. It is. I can tell you that personally. I, I, I have learned a lot personally. So this is great. All right. So uh, you can find us, obviously, on your podcast app. You can find us on the web at texascrimdefense.com. You can find us on Facebook at Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Uh, You can even find us on Twitter, um, A-N-A-T-X-C-R-I-M-D-E-F. That would be us on the Twitter. I think we have still eight followers. Loves how that rolls off the tongue. I know. (laughs) Thanks to our guest, Elise Ferguson, for today's episode. And, and thanks to my co-host for, you know, I don't know, just being his rosy self Aww. and not leaving his socks everywhere. There's yeah, something there. Yeah. You know, Tammy wouldn't allow that. Anyways, y'all, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Bye.